Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to begin reading with verse 12 and read down through verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 12. <clears throat> Paul is writing, of course, he says, Now if Christ is preached that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, we, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Father, this morning, Lord, we, we rejoice in this text. Lord, because this text is fundamental to our lives as those who have professed Jesus as Lord and Savior of our lives. Father, we recognize that without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Christianity cannot stand. Our faith would be nothing, as Paul so eloquently writes in this portion of Scripture. Lord, we know the truth, and the truth is that Jesus has indeed risen. And Lord, we are evidence of this. Those of us who have followed Jesus Know that our lives have been radically changed. We have a new perspective. We have, we have new emotions, new purpose. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so, Father, we are grateful this morning as we gather here so that we can read the scriptures together and that we can sing songs of praise and that we can bring our petitions to you. And as we do so, Father, we know that you are able, just as you raised Jesus from the dead, so you can raise us from the dead as well. So we give you thanks for all things in Jesus' name, amen. In one of his little booklets, John Blanchard tells an interesting story about having a long conversation with an atheist at an engagement at the University of Cape Town. Before leaving this engagement, he asked his newfound friend a very pointed question. He says, what do you think of Christ? And without a moment's hesitation, his atheist friend replied, I'm not sure, but I do know this. Everything depends on whether or not he rose from the dead. I think you have to admit that that's a pretty intriguing comment. And what makes it so intriguing is that it's not what you would expect an atheist to say. In fact, it's vastly different than the comments made by Richard Dawkins, who has been described as one of the best-known atheists in the world. 
In his book that's entitled The God Delusion, Dawkins very candidly says, there is no evidence in favor of God's existence. The Bible, in his opinion, is a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents. The only difference, he says, between the Da Vinci Code and the Gospels is that the Gospels are ancient fiction while the Da Vinci Code is modern fiction. When asked about his views on Jesus, Dawkins surprisingly answers by saying he probably existed. But then he adds, but the idea that Jesus came back to life after being dead and buried is, as he puts it, absurd. Absurd? Really? I mean, if you're like me, you want to say, no, Mr. Dawkins, you're the one who is absurd. But have you ever thought, I mean, have you, have you ever wondered, what if Dawkins is right? What if the idea of a risen Jesus is absurd? What if Jesus had not risen from the grave? What if, what if it's true? I mean, would it really matter? Would it, would it make any difference in the way that you and I live out our lives? One theologian was asked this question by a Washington Post reporter, and her response was really quite shocking. She said, if the bones of Jesus were found tomorrow, it would make no difference to me. I would go on going to church as would the majority of Christians. Seriously? Who do you know would do something like that? Would you keep on going to church if the bones of Jesus were found tomorrow? Would, would you do that? Why would anyone do that? I can tell you I wouldn't do it. I mean, what would be the point? It's a valid question, and whether you realize it or not, this is the very same question that that Paul raised in this 15th chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians. The primary issue that, that Paul was dealing with in this chapter really was not the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, granted, he he expounds on the resurrection, but the primary issue for the Corinthians was the Corinthians' own bodily resurrection. Some of the Corinthian believers had clearly accepted the truth of Christ's resurrection, which was evidenced by the transformation of their lives. But even though they affirmed Christ's resurrection, what they apparently could not affirm, what they couldn't really get their head around, was their own bodily resurrection. Which is what prompted Paul to ask the question that he does in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul says, how can you believe and preach that Christ is raised from the dead and yet not believe that your own body will be raised? Paul's point, you see, is rather emphatic and rightfully so. In his mind, you see, those two events, Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection, are absolutely inseparable. They go hand in hand. They're they're a package deal. If you deny one, then you deny the other, which is precisely the conclusion Paul draws in verse 13. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, that is, if your body is not resurrected, if my body is not resurrected, if all that happens at death is that our bodies are placed in the ground and we rot and there's nothing more, Paul says Christ is not risen. And you understand if Christ is not risen, then the whole house of Christianity, the whole superstructure of Christianity collapses. Which makes you wonder, what would that look like? What would Christianity look like without a risen Christ? What would our lives be like if Jesus being raised from the dead is as absurd as Richard Dawkins says that it is? 
Well, this is precisely what Paul gives his attention to, beginning with verse 14 of our text here. You'll notice what he says. He says, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. What would Christianity without a risen Savior look like? Paul says, first and foremost, our preaching would be utterly useless. In other words, what we have said and communicated all these years about the person of Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross would be hollow and pointless. Our preaching and teaching would would be like a shell without anything inside of it. It would have no no substance, no real content. The chain of, of doctrinal truth that makes up what we believe today would be absolutely worthless. Why? Because, you see, all of those doctrinal truths hinge on one event, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A perfect example of this is found in... What Paul says at the very beginning of this chapter as he, as he writes to the Corinthians, he reminds them of the centrality of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ to their lives. And this is what he says. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Paul says to the Corinthians, the gospel, the good news that I'm declaring to you is the very same gospel that I preached to you. In other words, nothing had changed with the gospel or with Paul's preaching. It was and still remained the core of their faith. So what was this gospel that Paul had preached and that the Corinthians had received and that had become the basis of their salvation? Well, he tells us in verse 3. He says, for I delivered to you, first of all, or as of first importance, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul says He delivered to the Corinthians that which was of first importance. And what was that? Well, it was the essence of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that He was buried And that he rose again the third day. In other words, the whole of what Paul had preached, which was strategically focused on Jesus' death and his burial, was predicated on a singular truth that Jesus rose from the dead. Meaning that Jesus' death and burial would have been irrelevant if he had stayed in that tomb. John Blanchard says that for the first Christian preachers, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was was not a sensational extra to attract a crowd. It was the heart and soul of the entire message. The center of gravity in their teaching was not an ethic. It wasn't some moralistic teaching that we would live our lives by. He says, but it was an event, and if the event never took place, Blanchard says, we can feed the New Testament to the shredder. James S. Stewart wrote of Christ's resurrection, there is no appendix to the faith. This is the faith. So Paul is emphatic. If Jesus is not raised, our preaching is empty. It's useless. But not only is our preaching empty, he goes on to say that our faith would be empty as well. That is, if, if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is, is nothing more than a, than a fairy tale, a fabricated story, a conglomeration of first century nonsense, then our faith is nothing more than a pipe dream. It's all bogus. I mean, what can a dead Savior actually do? Well, he can't give life. He can't satisfy God's wrath against sin. He, he can't justify anyone. He can't, 
He can't sanctify anyone. He can't, he can't glorify anyone. He can't forgive sins. He can't sustain life in the now or the hereafter. He can't comfort us. He can't guide us. He can't do anything. So if you don't have a, if you don't have a living Savior, then what do you have? You have nothing. Your faith is a joke, and so is the faith of everyone who's ever believed on Jesus. John MacArthur says that if there were no resurrection, the hall of faithful in Hebrews 11 would instead be the hall of the foolish. Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, David, the prophets, and all the others would have been faithful for nothing. They would have been mocked, scourged, imprisoned, stoned, afflicted, ill-treated, and put to death completely in vain. All believers of all ages would have believed for nothing, lived for nothing, and died for nothing. Thirdly, Paul says that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are all liars. Look at what he says in verse 15. And yes, we we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. You understand to be called false witnesses is the same as saying that you and I are guilty of, of lying. And the subject of our lies, if you look closely at verse 15, is God himself. Paul says we are found false witnesses of God, meaning we are representing God. Literally, we are testifying against God. Why? Because we are testifying to something that we say he did when all the while we know that he didn't really do it. And I think we all know full well that this is a very serious thing. I mean, nobody likes to be called a liar. In fact, for some women like Paul to do something like this would have been would have been a betrayal of everything that he was and everything that he stood for. Paul's belief in God, you see, ran deep. God was not some figment of his imagination or a theory to be embraced as kind of a backup plan. No, his belief in God was a critical part of his being. As one teacher writes, Paul believed that God was the creator and ruler of the universe, that he was utterly holy, that he was all-knowing, and that he was judge of all the earth, and that the day was coming when each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, in light of this, it seems utterly ridiculous, doesn't it, that Paul would give his life to the telling of fanciful lies, or better yet, that he would actually base his life upon it. But if Jesus did not rise from the grave, that is precisely what Paul did. And that is precisely what we are doing here today. Fourthly, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we have no forgiveness for our sins. Paul puts it this way in verse 16 and 17. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, guess what? Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. That word futile that Paul uses here is different from the word that is translated as empty in verse 14. This word means to fail to produce or to fail to do what is promised. And what does our faith in Christ promise? What does it it produce? Well, it produces deliverance. It promises to deliver us from God's wrath against sin. When we say to people that we have been saved, what we're basically saying to them is that we have been saved from our sins. We've been saved from God's wrath against sin. 
You see, it's the, it's the one thing that all of humanity needs. We need God's wrath appeased. We need forgiveness. Why? Because we're all guilty sinners, each and every one of us. We are sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice. Romans 3.23 says it well. For all have sinned, not some, but for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Well, to fall short of God's glory not only means that we have fallen short of what God demands or what God requires. It's not just simply that we have missed the bullseye, so to speak. It's even worse than that. It means as well, and I think it's John Piper who put it this way, that we have exchanged that glory, the glory of God, for something of lesser value. That is, instead of trusting in God and His way, we have trusted in ourselves. As Isaiah put it, he said, we, we all are like sheep who have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Listen, I can't think of a better definition of sin than to say that you and I have gone our own way. That's what Isaiah says. He says, all of us have turned and gone our own way. All of us have trusted in ourselves and, and thereby have exchanged God's glory for our own glory. And because we've exchanged God's glory for our own, the Bible says, the wrath of God abides upon us. And this, you see, is the gospel. This is precisely why Jesus came. He came to appease the wrath of God. How? By offering himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came to die in our place. To be your substitute. Peter wrote of this in 1 Peter 3 verse 18 when he said that Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Why? That he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 4 verse 25 that Jesus was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised. Notice that. He was raised because of our justification. Someone said this, that Jesus' resurrection proved that the penalty had been paid and that all who put their trust in Jesus received the free gift of God, which is eternal life. But you understand, if the remains of Jesus are still lying in some Jerusalem tomb, then God rejected Jesus' death as the perfect sacrifice and we are left with no one who can deliver us from whom we are, or what we have done. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. And if that is true, then we have no Savior to deliver us. Then the only prospect we have for the future is eternal punishment and death. Fifthly, if Christ is not raised, Paul says, all of our loved ones, all of our loved ones who have died with their hope in Christ, are lost. Paul says those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died in Christ, have perished. You get this, right? If Christ is not raised, then every believer who died trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus Christ has forever perished. Literally, they are eternally destroyed. That would include all the Old Testament prophets, Paul, and all the apostles, and all the known and unknown saints of God from the beginning of time. Finally, Paul says, if Christ is not raised, then our lives are to be pity. He says in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Have you ever heard someone say something like this? Even if the Christian faith isn't true, it's still the best way to live. Or sometimes they'll say things like this. 
They'll say that, you know, if, if I live the Christian faith and it's, and it's not true, then I've really lost nothing. But if it is true, then I've lost everything. Now, that may sound good to our ears, but if you read carefully what Paul says in this verse, it's really not true. I mean, his point is really quite graphic. He says, if in this life only, meaning if we believe in Jesus here and now, and we follow his teaching like some follow the teachings of Gandhi or Confucius, without any real hope of life after death. And Paul literally says, we are the most miserable lot among men. We are fooling ourselves. We are living a self-deluded lie. The World Evangelical Alliance Religious Commission concludes that literally hundreds of thousands of people today are being killed, brutalized, sold to slaves, imprisoned, tortured, threatened, discriminated against, and arrested solely, solely because they are Christians. They are being subjected to persecution and suffering, the extent of which we can hardly begin to comprehend because of their faith. Incredibly, more than 200 million people in over 60 nations are being denied their basic human rights for one reason and one reason only. They are Christian. But if Christ is not alive, then you have to ask the question, what's the point? Their suffering and their boldness to stand for Christ is absolutely meaningless. And Richard Dawkins is right. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves us with the truth. And where is the truth? The truth is found in a risen Christ. And when I say a risen Christ, I'm not talking about some figment of an overzealous imagination resurrection or some ghost-like substance resurrection or some bait-and-switch resurrection. I'm talking about a real flesh and bones resurrection, just like Paul describes in verse 3. Notice again what he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, Paul could have stopped right there. But he didn't do that. Because I think he knew that it's one thing to just say something, but it's another to prove it. And that's what he begins to do in verse 5. He says, and that he was seen, that Jesus was seen by Cephas, who is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren, at once of whom the greater part, he says, remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. He said, some have died. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. Paul makes it very clear that Jesus' resurrection was not some unsubstantiated event. No, he says they were, there were literally hundreds of eyewitnesses. He was seen by Peter, by the disciples, by James and the other apostles, by Paul, and then by over 500 of the brethren who Paul says at the time that he was writing this letter, the greater part were still alive. That is, they were, they were living, they were walking, and they were able to give verbal testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this is why he could say with such confidence as he does in verse 20, 
But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. What does Paul tell us? He tells us that Christ is risen, that he's not dead. His body is not rotting away in some Jerusalem tomb. He is alive. The first man, Adam, brought death, and all who die in him, the Bible says, will die eternally. But the second man, Jesus, brought life. And all who die in him, all who believe in him, all who trust in him, all who reside in him, all who live for him and follow him will live eternally. And how can we be sure? All we have to do is look to Jesus Christ, who Paul says is the first fruits of those who have died and who will die. What does that mean? It means that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is the first part of a bigger harvest to come. Just as Jesus came out of the grave, so shall everyone who has trusted in him. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 19, because I live, you will live also. Ray Pritchard says that if we have trusted in Jesus Christ, every single one of us, listen, every single one of us will be raised immortal, incorruptible, perfected, completed, glorified, free from sickness, delivered from death, with sin gone forever. Human frailty disappeared. Personality retained, eternally endowed, supernaturally restored, made like Jesus. All the defects finally gone. Amen? All that is under construction finally completed. With healthy bodies, with clear minds, with undivided hearts, in company with all the saints of all the ages, in a multitude that no man can number. We will gather around the throne. He says we will rejoice and laugh and sing. We will know each other more deeply. We will love more completely. We will think more clearly. We will still be who we are, and yet, he says, we will be more than we have ever been. We will become what we always wanted. We will finally see our loved ones who died in the Lord. We will meet those who went before us. We will see the saints of old. We will get to know Abraham, Esther, Luther, and Spurgeon. We will see our grandparents and our grandchildren. We will marvel at the grace of God forever. And most importantly, most importantly, we will see Jesus and bow down before him. And we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, if you're a believer here this morning, the only fitting response to all that we've seen and all that we've heard from this text is to fall down on our faces and to cry out, Jesus is risen and we are saved. Today, you see, is a day of worship. But if you're not a believer, if you're still in your sins and separated from Christ, today is a day for you to consider who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. The frightening thing is that today may be a day of hardening for you. You may hear the gospel, you may hear the good news, and reject it and walk out here still in your sins. But today may also be the most glorious day that you've ever experienced. Because today may be the first time that you actually see. And if that's the case, I mean, if you are seeing this morning for the first time, 
My appeal to you is to run to Christ, trust him, believe on him, repent of your sins. And he will save you. He will by no means cast you out. Let's pray.